Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It's Monday, March 6th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by Times of Israel founding editor David Horowitz and diplomatic correspondent Lazar Berman. Hello, good morning to you both. Hey, Jessica. Good morning. As the number and types of protests against the government's judicial overhaul expand, there are IDF reservists refusing to serve, pilots skipping training sessions, and other IDF related concerns. We'll talk about those, as well as Finance Minister Batsalo Smotrich backpedaling on his Huara comments and growing world criticism. Before we jump into it all, a quick word from our sponsor. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. David, let's get started with you. We've got various IDF-linked worries. This squadron that skipped a training session, dozens of pilots telling the Israel Air Force chief that they're worried about the overhaul, Smotrich backpedaling on his comments and what that means for some of these IDF units. Uh, There were also El Al pilots who appeared to decline the opportunity to fly the Netanyahu's to Rome over the weekend. Where do we stand on all of this, and what could it all mean? Well, at the root of all this is a very divided country, and and I would say two areas that are at, you know at the focus of protests. One is the judicial overhaul, which we've spoken about forever and will continue to speak about. Uh, this is a very fateful month, the last few weeks of this Knesset session, and a coalition that is intent on getting uh, this legislation into law, which basically gives the coalition majority control of the High Court. And you've also got statements in in the wake of uh, an upsurge in terrorism and a reprisal action by a group of a fairly large group of uh, of settler extremists. And as you mentioned, Finance Minister Smotrich, who also has defense ministry responsibilities, uh, initially talking about the imperative to quote unquote wipe out the northern West Bank town of Huara, where two Israeli brothers were killed uh, a little over a week ago. I suppose the most dramatic of the protests and expressions of concern was a meeting late last week that we are told something, several dozen active reserve pilots. That's, you know, we have a standing army in Israel, of course, but pilots do reserve duty for many, many years afterwards and a considerable amount of reserve duty and it's active reserve duty. In other words, they're flying uh, and they're flying on missions and they're not flying um, they're not doing the month or so of reserve duty that many um, Israeli ex-soldiers do. Uh, in some cases, they're doing two months and even more of very, very uh, vital reserve duty. And they met with the Air Force chief and they said that they represented hundreds more pilots. And they're worried. And they're worried 
in part because a neutered high court could be very personally problematic for them. And by the way, for anybody in the military, one of the great defenses that Israel has against often obsessively anti-Israel international forums is that Israel has a liberal and independent and capable high court of its own. And therefore, if there are alleged abuses, it's credible, um, that court, in terms of investigating them. And that keeps off uh, outside intervention. So if we do, if we are not to have an independent and capable high court, they said to the Air Force chief, we're going to be vulnerable. And then add that to the fact that you have a senior minister with some defense ministry responsibilities talking about wiping out a, a Palestinian town. Now, Smotrick then somewhat walked back, or, or in fact, he did walk back. He, he said he didn't mean it. He didn't mean it in terms of the the image that his comments conjured up, which was you know, wiping out a village or a town. How do you do that? Well, you know, maybe you do it on the ground and maybe you do it from the air. And, and somewhere in that concern that the pilots expressed was, well, wait a minute, you're going to be telling us to do things that are patently illegal. And therefore, one of the things that they said, which, of course, they would never have imagined themselves needing to say, I think, is, you know, we're not going to carry out illegal orders, all of which gives you a sense of quite how fraught and problematic things are. And the last thing I'll say, just in response to, to your question here, is you know the Israeli army has been needs to be you know above the political fray. Now that's a very precious kind of um, comment, and and maybe it sounds unrealistic, but broadly speaking, basically, fundamentally, that that has generally been the case. And if you don't have uh, an army that trusts its hierarchy. Uh, and a hierarchy that, uh, broadly speaking, trusts its political leadership, uh, you've got incredibly problematic uh, consequences. And we're starting to, to to witness some of those. I was in reserves yesterday, and I will say that definitely in my pluga, in my company, and I'm sure many others around the military, the consensus is that using the, the reserves, using the military to express political views is... Uh, absolutely beyond the pale. And it's, you know, we have a hundred something people in the company and there was broad agreement that, you know, we might have different uh, opinions, but that's fine. We're not dragging that into the WhatsApp groups and not into training, anything like that. There have been times in our memory and when I was in the military, let's say during the disengagement, where there was a, I would say even a deeper fissure within the nation. And if then people who supported the presence in the Gaza Strip and opposed the disengagement from the right wing of the political spectrum said, we're going to stop serving like that, it would have, would have done terrible things to the military. And let's not forget there was a war the next year. Um, so I think that there's broad consensus that this is uh, this is really dragging the military by force into this, which is something that is dangerous for national security. I will also say that um, the parts of the IDF that are seen as kind of the elite, the uh, Shimon and Matayim, the 8200, the pilots and th things like that, are not representative of the country's political uh, leanings as a whole. They tend to be more wealthy, more Ashkenazi from uh, wealthy suburbs of Tel Aviv, from Kibbutzim. Um, I think it's no coincidence that in these elite units you are hearing more politicization and you're not seeing it in, let's say, um, the infantry and, and the armor, where they generally take from, you know, kind of less, uh, lower socioeconomic parts of society from, from the periphery. And, and you're not going to hear these type of things there. You might have individuals, but it's not going to be at the same level. And I think it's no coincidence. And that needs to be part of the context. And do we feel, David, that this buildup of comments, letters, protests, coming that are related to the IDF, do we feel that that could really sway 
the direction in which this entire issue is moving. We also have, as, as I mentioned earlier, we have opposition members of the government who are saying, hold on, don't make those kinds of statements because that is really a red line. Well, the first thing is that, that your your second point is is indeed the case that the Ayer Lapids and the Benny Gantzes and so on, and Gantz, of course, is a former defense minister and a former chief of staff, has have been uh, uh, saying, no, you, you must continue to serve, you must continue to uh, turn up for reserve duty. And I'm not sure how much further that those kinds of uh, threats and protests go. We don't know. We don't know if this is if it's going to stop here or whether you're going you're to see more widespread. Um, in, you know, in the case of of a, of a key um, IAF squadron, uh, thirty seven of forty um, active active reservists uh, are not refusing service. They're skipping or they're they're not um, going through with a scheduled training session on Wednesday, and instead they're going to have a discussion about democracy or some such. It's not quite the same as refusing to serve. So we don't know how much further and how much wider it's going to be. And obviously, Jessica, I, I don't know what the impact is going to be on the political echelon, right? You have a prime minister who is who, who appointed uh, a justice minister knowing exactly what that justice minister's program was for uh, sweeping judicial reform and who empowers a committee chair uh, to pilot legislation through parliament knowing exactly what that committee chair uh, stands for and intends to do. Is Netanyahu, because therefore it all does come back to Netanyahu, is he inclined... Uh, belatedly uh, to heed President Herzog's call and pause the legislation and enable some kind of substantive dialogue. He says he wants to dialogue. He hasn't committed to halting the legislation. Is something going to move him? Why is he doing this? You know, is, is he making these reforms because suddenly he has decided that a much more drastic reform process than one he had ever endorsed before is necessary? Is he motivated by a desire to get out of his trial? You would have thought there were other ways less drastic that he might have tried to um, make some uh, of a difference there. Or what's driving him? He's got a coalition, all of whose separate entities have their own particular reasons, some of them common to each other, but some of them unique to to a party or, or two parties, why they want the high court constrained. And therefore, it's hard to imagine that this coalition would remain intact if the process is halted, uh, maybe even if it is slowed. So there's, you know, national political leadership at stake here. And then you have not only the, the, the military aspect that we've discussed, but these weekly demonstrations and really twice weekly now major demonstrations, a Saturday night nationwide protests. And then uh, last week, there was a, a quote unquote day of disturbance and another one set for this Thursday. Are, are, is this accumulation of opposition going to move Netanyahu? Maybe more to the point, is it going to prompt a half a dozen members of his own Likud party to say, guys, you know, this is this is too wrenching and too rending. Maybe we do need to slow this down. And you've heard Yuli Edelstein, former Speaker of the Knesset, quite a senior member of Likud, an opponent of Netanyahu's uh, at times, saying, you know, we ought to pause. If the opposition isn't serious about discussion, then we can always restart. Uh, that's one voice. There's another, a second voice in the could that's been a little li- less explicit, but maybe in that direction. The defense minister, Yoav Gallant, also the could is plainly worried. It's in that direction that maybe you 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 can ask. You know, are there going to be voices in the could that have an impact on Netanyahu? But again, if he pauses this legislation, his coalition is in trouble. If he halts it, it may be over. So the stakes, you know, are very high politically. 
Okay, certainly, certainly seems so. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Laser will talk about world criticism, which is also growing from allies in the region. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Okay. We are back. Laser, tell us what's happening on that front. As I mentioned, world criticism is growing, not from enemies, but from allies in the region, in the U.S., former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, others. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so first of all, uh, in just talking to foreign diplomats stationed in Israel, there's clearly a concern. Um, Even if you go back to, let's say, Netanyahu's visit to Paris in early February, where Macron expressed, the French President Emmanuel Macron expressed that maybe Israel and France won't have a common vision of democracy anymore. So amongst Israel's allies in Europe and also in the White House, um, there is concern. And I think in Europe, it's especially concerning after seeing Hungary, Poland, and the like, that that Israel could be moving in in that direction. Um, You referenced Mayor Bloomberg. He had a New York Times Sunday op-ed which is a very significant thing, of course, from the former mayor, the former presidential candidate, um, saying that he, you know, he's obviously a friend of Israel, a longtime friend of Israel, but that Netanyahu's government is courting disaster, imperiling Israel's alliances, its security, its democracy, and also its economy. So that is certainly something that, uh, you know, is from a friend of Israel. We also had Alan Dershowitz sign with other law professors who are friends of Israel. Um, we had a letter also from Nobel Prize winners, econom- uh, economists. So you have people who are very prominently, very outspokenly pro-Israel who are expressing their concern. Um, and that does go down to uh, or across um, the lines to, to diplomats as well. So I think across the West, from academics, um, from government officials, from former officials, from experts, there there is concern uh, about what this means for Israel. And again, from friends of Israel and not people who are uh, hostile to Israel in any way. I will say, though, that this criticism, even if there's some compromise we reached, uh, will certainly give uh, enemies of Israel more fuel to say, to criticize Israel's democracy and push things like BDS. But uh, that is not uh, what people are focusing on now. We're hearing from friends of Israel, again, that are concerned about Israel's future. Yeah, just to add that it's, it, you know, Laser was speaking, I think, mainly in the context of the judicial overhaul, but um, the Smotrich-Hawara thing uh, is is very prominent in that mix as well. You know, wait a minute, this this is, a, a, what's kind of going on in Israel? Uh, and I think the Hawara thing uh, elevated that. When you've got 
not a beyond the pale, irrelevant, uh, marginal Knesset member, but a very, very, you know, one of the most senior jobs in Israel in, in, in politics. He's the finance minister. Uh, and he also has defense ministry responsibilities saying the state of Israel should wipe out the village in which uh, two Israeli brothers were killed. Um, and the prime minister didn't rush to condemn uh, his remarks. Now, again, Smotrich has clarified um, this is also the timing of this is interesting because uh, Smotrich is about to go to the United States in about um, less than less than 10 days for an Israel bonds event. And the United States is sending some interesting signals uh, along the lines of, you know, it would really be better that he didn't come. And the, it is suggested that they're considering whether or not to grant him a visa. Most analysts think that they would not prevent him from coming. But that this, you know, very controversial politician is now very senior in the Israeli government is saying un unthinkable things has exacerbated concerns, as Laser said, among Israel's allies. Um, and the, the concern, I mean, some of the concerns would indeed be prompted by the fact that you're going to make this, if you disable your high court, you're going to make this very easy for, for people who are totally hostile to you. But uh, I agree with Laser. That's not really what they're most worried about. They're most worried about what they fear is going on in Israel. Thanks for that, David. Thank you both for being on today's Daily Briefing. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. We will be back tomorrow with another Daily Briefing. In the meantime, have yourselves a good listen and a good day. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.